This episode is brought to you by Grub Bath & Beyond, the world's only restaurant where every patron gets served their meal while soaking in a full-sized clawfoot tub. You walk in. The hostess shows your party to your banqueting tubs arranged in a circle facing each other. Everyone strips down to their birthday suits and climbs in. Your waitress brings your aperitifs and takes your orders. Mexican? Spaghetti? How about a nice big cob salad? Nothing breaks the ice like stewing in your own juices with nothing between you and your loved ones but some dissolved bath salts. It's the perfect venue to host a first date, a family reunion, or an office party with the boss. And Grub Bath & Beyond will cater any special event or just show up at your bathroom with an entire deli spread and a pitcher of beer. Call now to reserve your tubs for Mother's Day. And when you bring your mother to Grub Bath & Beyond on that special day, your grandmother gets her meal at half off. And by the end of the meal, everyone will be as wrinkly as she is. Haha, <laughs> that's funny. Just mention the promo code REREAD, one word, to your server. And thank you, Grub Bath & Beyond, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. So, Craig, regarding the last episode, mm -hmm. Austin Beeman chimed in to postulate whether the scene with Dorcas on the lake was less about mere technology than possession of the sort that Wolf described in detail in the Book of the Long Sun. Long Sun, yeah. yeah. He said, great episode. Dorcas's rapid change of attitude from erudite and seductive to subdued and crying. Does this remind anyone of the possessions in the Long Sun? Um, First, how do you how do you understand the possessions in Long Sun? What do you think is going on there? Well, let me say this: I think that the cargo, that is, the people on the generation ship of the Long Sun, are genetically modified to be able to receive these possessions through their eyes. Oh, okay. So I think it's a little more complicated than that, but you know, maybe not. I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't feel like the same thing as possessions, but it's a nice cat. But you do get the sense, like, because I always got the sense that in Lungsun, the possessions were somehow technological. Like, it's not like mm -hmm. all of a sudden we're doing magic or something. Yeah, I absolutely. Yeah, I think so. It doesn't feel like the same thing as what the we see, any of the technology that we see in the Book of the New Sun. But, you know, actually, there are some overlaps that someone had pointed out, and we'll get to that in a minute as well. But actually, someone did draw a connection between uh, Lake Limna, which is in the Book of the Long Sun, and the Lake of Birds here. So, I don't know. Maybe there will be something to that. It could be. And as far as possession goes, the only reason I don't think so is just because that's not something that really comes up in the rest of New Sun. It's it's not an issue. Like, it's central, of course, to Long and Short Sun. Mm -hmm. I'd say Short Sun in particular. But, um, but in New Sun, we don't ever really see that happen anywhere else. And that's the kind of thing that if he was doing it, it would be so buried and suggested that you would need the next series that came out yeah. 10 years later to actually know what was going on. So Yeah, there's I no kinda... description of mechanics for possession. 
Right. Or even there's not a, I mean, apart from the Alzabo, there's nothing that kind of does possess other people. Right. Right. So um, that's true. Yeah. Well, Gary Owens doesn't address the lake scene, but he does have a different theory about the Kumeyans power in the book of the new sun. He says, it appears that the Kumeyans summoning of Apupunchao in the stone town is less to do with time travel than it does with creating Eidolons of Apupunchao, the villagers and the stone town itself. Eidolons are created from memories of an existing mine made manifest from, quote, dust. The equaster, Malrubia, states that he and Triskly are a, quote, dance of particles in space, and when he dissipates, he fades into bright dust. The Kamean informs the summoning party that the town has to be summoned from a mind that existed when it was whole, and then is able to psychically connect with an ancient and acute mind connected with the red star in the sky. The stone town and the villagers come into being from dust, swirling and become more dense to form a solid mass. And he also has a theory about that star that the Kamean mentioned in the scene. But we'll probably wait until we get there in two years before we talk about it. (laughs) But you can check out the full discussion in the link in the show notes. So I like this because it connects to a lot of other things with memory and how Severian brings people back through memory and in the Alzabo or in the analeptic by using it. Um, And what that means is that if that's what Eidolons are, then it's kind of like a technological version of what Severian can do with Thecla. In a mm-hmm. certain sense, right? It's that happens inside his head, but it's as far as then how you get the personality of the Eidolons, it's kind of the same principle, I would imagine. And we know that that can happen in this world because of the Alzabo, because of the analytic. So to have those Eidolons and, and that the Cumaean does just be another version of that, it actually is kind of a clean and efficient way to <laughs> to think about that because it's all kind of the same or at least related technology, right? It's not like the Q-Man has to do something totally foreign. And I like that because I was never particularly happy with the idea that he does actually time travel there Um, for a few reasons, just because time travel seems like such a a kind of special or unique thing later on that a few people can do that. It doesn't seem like something you could hire a witch to go do. I don't, I mean, I don't know. That's, that's more of a, a gut feeling, but I do like the idea that connecting that with the dust, like noticing that, and I had forgotten that Malrubius is described in terms mm-hmm. of sort of pieces of dust going away. And that right. is exactly how the Cumaean talks about it. So I actually like that a lot. Yeah. Well, Cody Martin reached out on email. Remember, he's a listener who originally connected the myths on the water to time traveling undines. It's yep. something I made use of by theorizing that the Lake of Birds was a gigantic mirror used by the Kamehameha and that any body of water might be used that way in theory. So anyway, I suggested that the myths don't signal the undines themselves, but their time-traveling nature. Uh, Cody and I had a lot to say on the topic, and I hope he'll post it on Facebook or Reddit sometime. He also connected the Lake of Birds, as I was saying, to the terminals on the Book of the Long Sun. He noted that Silk or someone made the mental connection that Lake Limna could be used as a giant sacred window. And he was also inclined to believe that the manatees that 
the people had seen and that the Averns were ostensibly planted to control were actually Undines accessing the Lake of Birds for their own reasons. Of course, Undines are famously connected to mermaids. Columbus, on his voyage, had seen manatees and identified them as mermaids, noting that they aren't as beautiful as reported. <laughs> I asked how the Averns were supposed to keep the Undines out, given that the Undines would not be so stupid as to pick them. For that matter, they don't seem to be a good solution for controlling manatees either. Cody theorized that Averns are much more active predatory creatures during the night, actively hunting prey. And that's a cool idea. On whether the undines themselves cause the mists on the water, or if the mists are caused by time travel itself, Cody acknowledged that point and offered a counter theory as to why the mists are on the lake. He says, you may have a point. I reread the part where Juturna attempts to seduce Severian into joining Abaya, and there's no mention of of mists or fog, though it was early morning. She also says that they started tracking him after he slept with Baldanders. So it's unlikely that any are on the lake watching Severian himself when the mists are apparent in chapter 15, when he crosses the bridge. True, Cody, but they might have been tracking Baldanders. So, and he says, I have thought of another alternative for there being mists. If Severian's power is essentially just time manipulation, the mists could have been caused by Dorcas's resurrection, which is to say that the mists are not there because the lake is a mirror, but because Severian is a time manipulator. Well done, Cody. Yeah, that could be that. All those possibilities for why mist is connected, because of course we never know exactly, like, is it is it a mechanical thing so like the smoke from the machine that's doing this from Severian's <laughs> mind or something you know but but it certainly signals it and yeah I do I I still don't know whether it's supposed to in Wolf's mind whether it was just a bit of good atmosphere or something to sort of just uh, to mark something out or whether he actually in the back of his mind had some kind of technological reason for it but right well, finally, Cody has a theory about how the body Bodilus and company dig up in the necropolis in chapter one of Shadow of the Torturer could be Thecla's. Get this. He says, Thea's personal concern about the condition of the corpse and Hildegrin's reassurance is what really makes me believe that it is Thecla. By my understanding of the time travel shenanigans, while to Severian, it has been at least a year since he met Bodilus. To Hildegrin, it was only last night that they robbed Thecla's grave in the necropolis. I reread the section where uh, Severian meets Vodilus, and I didn't notice any conversation that made Cody's theory impossible. At least in this case, the timing seems to work naturally. Cody isn't compelled by my theory that when Severian sees the exhumed woman's face in Alton's it means that Alton had fed on the body. He says, quote, I think Severian's memory was just playing tricks on him since the descent into darkness reminded him so much of, the, of a grave. I have an issue with why would anyone want Severian to encounter Bodilus at such an early time? What did they gain from that? And Cody said, I believe the point of having Severian encounter Vodalus before being exiled is a question to loyalty. Abaya wants Severian to betray his guild so he contrives a situation where Severian is inducted into another secret brotherhood. Making this happen on the same day that Juturna saves him from drowning should make a strong imprint on his mind. 
If all this happens before Severian's elevation to journeyman, his loyalty to Vodalus should take precedence over the guild. If not for Vodalus, then perhaps Severian would come to Obaya out of gratitude and possibly love for Juturna. It nearly works too. In chapter 28 of Claw, Severian says, quote, She extended her hand toward me, and at the same moment I heard Dorcas's agonizing voice crying for help. I turned to run to her, yet if the Undyned waited, I think I might have turned back. Hmm. Interesting. I always assumed that if Vodalus and that whole first chapter was part of a manipulation, that it would be manipulated by the Autarch and um, Inirae just to get Severian kind of mixed all up in that that world, weird world. Because, of course, we know that Vodalus eventually, of course, works for the Autarch. Right. Um, without knowing it, he he's doing it. Um, so that's where I go with that. The But it could be. I mean, the problem is it's one of those it's one of those speculations that there's not much to really go on other than, you know, a bunch of speculations. But it's put together well, like if you want to think that that Abaya is the one who's trying to sort of snare Severian in something, then that would work. That would certainly yeah. work. Yeah, the theory works. And the clothes and hair of that exhumed corpse do match Thecla's. I mean, it works. It works very well at that level. Also on email, Bernard Stockermans was considering our discussion of the Angelus in the Hildegrin chapter. He said, when I read this the first time, it seemed a sacral way of mentioning the passing of time, the way one might have spoken in a society without wristwatches. Your discussion made me look a little closer, however, when you connected the Angelus with the resurrection. Something about this didn't ring true for me, since, although it's not unrelated, the resurrection is not the primary event that the Angelus remembers. Which is to say, Craig, that the subject of the Angelus is the annunciation of the birth of Christ rather than the resurrection. Mm -hmm. And then he goes on. If we are supposed to get something more than world building from this, then it might instead be an association of the Angelus with water. In the Proto-Evangelum of James, the angel Gabriel first calls the Virgin Mary as she goes out to draw water with her pitcher. This can be seen in some of the iconographic traditions of the Annunciation, where a well or water vessel appears between the angel and the Virgin Mary. Reading the passage again, I also thought a bit about how Severian tries to speak to Dorcas in order to thank her, but water pours out of his mouth. And this reminded me of how the main verb in the final prayer of the Angelus is pour out grace. Well, the Proto-Evangelium of James is a pertinent reference because the Book of the Long Sun starts with a scene that is pretty straightforward an allusion to the birth of Christ in that non-canonical gospel. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, could be. Uh, then we have a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Ted Custer on Facebook loves the podcast and wishes that there was a rereading podcast on Ian Banks, and that would be neat. I hope he or someone else does it. Lots of people have been offering other things for rereading, and they're like, you should do this too, or something else. <laughs> so yeah, you, you guys have to make your own. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this, this takes a lot of work. Well, not that, not a ton of work, but no. Yeah, no, yeah. I'd like more people to do it. I've even... Uh, I even joked when on a Facebook thing with Samuel Delaney and I'm like, your stuff could certainly stand up for a chapter by chapter, slow thing. Like I'd love to yeah. see Dahlgren read that way or, mm -hmm. or the Neveriona tales. 
but yeah. So let's get some other voices in here too. Absolutely. We'll show you how to do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not hard. <laughs> <laughs> we, can, we can just branch out a franchise. And, <laughs> hey, that's what the Clay Temple guys have done. That's what the. Yeah. They, yeah. I mean, but they we just take need all to get, their things. But yeah. we need to get other people involved in preparing. This is a, the way we, maybe it's the way we do it. I, we just, all the stuff we do just takes too long. On Olton's library, co-founded by Nigel Price, who's been a guest here. On Olton's library, Mark Aramini, also a former guest twice, reviewed Michael Mantis, Andre Driussi's Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, a chapter guide. Uh, Michael has also been a guest twice here. The mass of the footprint of the Rereading Wolf podcast is now becoming too great for even <laughs> light to escape. Yeah, why did Nigel not put that at the beginning? <laughs> Mark Aramini, a contributor to the Rereading Wolf podcast, also writer of a Hugo nominated book. But yeah, yeah but yeah. that should be the main thing. <laughs> yeah, lead with that. But no, it's a good, very, it's a very thoughtful uh, review of Michael's short book. So his mm. latest one. So if you are, or it's not his latest one anymore. It's not the, the four nope. volume. It's the no, one. new one. Uh, but no, if you've been interested in finding out a little more about that, it's a great thing uh, to read. Cause I, I agree with everything Mark says in that. That's good. Yeah. And Nigel also, they've, he's got some things going. They've, uh, Michael has a new essay up there. Um, and Michael even went back and has a long sort of list of addenda to one of the early essays that they did on the Letro books. Right. Um, and it sort of goes through and, and I think corrects some things or shows some other alternatives uh, or alternate references or illusions or things like that. Yeah. Things are popping at the Elton's library. Mm -hmm. So yeah, check it out regularly. And the most awesome news of all for us, not for everyone, I guess, is that Dragon Stairs Press, the publishing company run by Michael Swanwick and his wife, Marianne Porter, are working on a limited edition published version of our conversation with him on this very own podcast. And that's an amazing honor. And we'll be sure to publicize that when it comes out. It's very limited, maybe 100 copies. So you'll need to get right on it. Yeah. Yeah. They said they're doing 100 copies. And the way they do it is Michael will... Well, Marianne will do it too, but mainly Michael will put a post out saying that whatever the latest one is, is live. And then they're all first come first. Go through. Mm -hmm. You can use PayPal or anything like that. Um, this one may be a little more niche than a lot of the things they do. So you, it's not like, I don't think this one will run out quite as fast, but um, what he does, he usually does it around noon, um, but he'll give you fair warning and we'll put warning up on the uh, on the Facebook page and on, right. on Reddit just in case. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Craig, it's late in the evening for you and I, and I'm feeling a bit peckish. So let's head on down to the Inn of Lost Loves and see what they have on special. Despair. <laughs> Chapter 25. The Inn of Lost Loves. Still, the day after Severian left the Citadel. It's mid-afternoon. He's left the botanical garden with Asia and Dorcas in his company, carrying his auburn flower tied to a branch like a banner or flag. Um, he starts this chapter interestingly. Quote, It has been my good fortune, or evil fortune, as it may be, that the places with which my life has been largely associated have been, with very few exceptions, of the most permanent character. I might tomorrow, if I wish, 
return to the Citadel, and, I think, to the very cot on which I slept as an apprentice. Gaiol still rolls past my city of Nessus. The botanic gardens still glitter in the sun, faceted with those strange enclosures wherein a single mood is preserved for all time. Okay. Um, it's been, what, a couple of years since Severian left his childhood home? He's, what, maybe 22 max? Oh, and he's writing this now? Isn't it? No, because he's getting ready to leave, right? So. Oh, he, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, so maybe it's, it's been 10, 10 years. 10 ish years. Yeah, yeah. Something like Still, that. It's a little early to declare the permanence of everything in his life. I mean, <laughs> he's he's only very recently disbanded the guild that raised him, a guild that had existed before the last Ice Age. So yeah. maybe it isn't also permanent. Well, we do know Severian is often happy to claim himself <laughs> mature and older than he was. And so. Yeah. yeah. I hit 30, so now all things are permanent. <laughs> well, he says, when I think of the ephemera of my life, they are likely to be men and women. Ephemera are any transitory things, things that are not meant to be kept or saved or to last or, you know, just anything that's not preserved over a long time. Postcards, by the way, are called ephemera. <laughs> oh, just, wow. Like, I did not know that. Where I hunt for things for the other one. Is all ephemera huh. sites. Yep. As far as the people that are ephemera, this accepts, of course, Thecla, who is with him always, mm-hmm. and all the autarchs. They are men and women of his life. Yeah, that's an interesting point that does go against what he's saying here. I mean, I know eventually he's making a different point, but right. that is almost a contradiction. <laughs> but he says, when he thinks of the ephemera of his life, there are a few houses as well. And first among these stands the inn at the margin of Sanguinary Field. So I guess the inn of Lost Loves is already gone? Um, It would be in the sense of, well, I guess I'm thinking of Earth. Like by the end of Earth, it's, of course, everything's gone. (laughs) But but, yeah, is it gone? I mean, I don't know. Is that suggesting that he got rid of... Monomaki and he got rid of, I don't know. Well, I mean, it's, um, it's a tree house. Maybe it, you know, it, it is, if there's anything that it, that's likely not to last, I guess yeah. it could well be that. Yeah. I mean, we, do we ever find out where Owen and Dorcas went? Someone tell me if earth of the new sun says it. I, I hope Owen moved his mom out of abandoned Nessus, but you know, sometimes it can be hard to convince your aging parents to move. So. Yeah, I mean, we know that he goes and tells Owen that he should go find Dorcas, but we don't. We know where she is. She's down in the oh yeah, oh yeah, in the jungles with the the Omophagus. She's. It's cool here that he talks about houses and that he's something about Severian and inns because the one other time, um, the inn that in Earth where he has the momentary realization and has the fight and, and looks out the window and sees his own star and has the connection and all of that. Um, the first proper inn that he stays at after coming back to earth is one where he's like, I, I felt so good in this place. And I decided I wanted to come back and visit it, even though it was chaotic and crazy. And that's where he also thinks that he sees himself in the crowd at one point. Mm-hmm. And so something about inns, he always has this sort of nostalgic feel for also like the inn at the beginning of Claw in Saltus, where he's quite content hanging out with Jonas for a short (laughs) while. Um, But yeah, something about inns and Severian makes him always want to return to them, even when crazy things happen. 
Like, right. you know, this is, it's always sort of funny here with this one where he says, it's not so much nostalgic, I don't think, because this is where I think he feels like he's finally going to get proof that Asia is against him and he finds out, you know, the truth of Dorcas and that's complicated and he's about to go off and kill himself. But still, it's he's got fond feelings. <laughs> this little bit of Lothlorien here yeah. in the middle of everything else. Yeah. So they walk down the streets of Nessus. It seems to take quite a while until they came to an open field. Severian wants to call it a grounds, but to him, grounds means an empty space that surrounds a grand villa, and there's none here. And this open area is where the sanguinary field is. Severian notices that the air feels a little stifling. There's no wind, and he can see a black line on the horizon, so he thinks there's a storm coming in. The blackness fills half the sky. Aji explains that the line is the wall the wall, the wall of Nessus. The wall is so tall and so encompassing that it impedes the movement of air. It always feels like this. Dorcas leans into Severian and says, I'm afraid, Severian. Severian, remember, was just considering that Dorcas's presence is awkward since he wants to convince Agia to have sex with him. He seems unaware that Agia has been trying to pull that off all day long. <laughs> Ajia, as a mean girl, can't keep it to herself. She says, afraid of the wall? It won't hurt you unless it falls on you. It has stood through a dozen ages. And Severian looks at her, apparently thinking, how do you know how long it's been there? And Ajia attempts to recover. Uh, at least it looks that old. It may be older. Who knows? Which is kind of an odd thing because she's all... She gets defensive, right? I still can't get Ajia and her sense of history, like how much she seems to know about the conciliator sometimes, and then talks about, why are you asking me so many questions? It's mm-hmm. just no, no, no. Yeah, she gets, well, once again, defensive. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I think she knows a lot. What Ajia explains is that by definition, the wall encloses the city because the city is what is enclosed in the wall. There's, <laughs> there's open country between the north of Nessus and the wall and leagues and leagues of ruins in the south, she says, where no one lives. Since the city only counts as Nessus, if it's in the wall, Nessus, which is continually moving north, has definitively moved as far north as it can, right? The reason for this open area is that it's illegal to build any closer to the wall than this. It's almost as if Ness's approach to the northern side of the wall is some kind of clock on the time that Earth has left. You know, Michael has a new theory on why the wall was built. Uh, He talked about it in our bonus episode. But there was a time when the Asians invaded almost to the citadel and were pushed back. I wonder if the wall was built shortly after that. It, It doesn't explain what everyone is doing inside the wall, though. Right. And I used to think, though, that because of the wall's height, that it was built to keep out undines or something like that. But the more we find out about how difficult of time they have actually walking on land, the less mm-hmm. likely that seemed that you're just yeah. not going to need that. So, yeah. So it makes more sense that it would be tall to keep out flyers, maybe, or something. Mm-hmm. We should stop for a second, too, and just think about the immensity of this. I mean, we've already lived, been in a city where spaceships... Rocket ships are left to, of course, be turned into 
towers and things like that. But now we've got this gigantic wall, which is bigger than anything we've seen before. Dorcas seems surprised by it. Severian's been living inside this for so long, and it's another kind of moment where he doesn't know his own world very well. Mm-hmm. This is the this is the wall of Nessus that seems some, like something that huge would have word would have gotten back to him at some point, <laughs> unless he'd heard about it, but he just didn't quite believe exactly what people had told him. Well, you know, it doesn't come up in the tower. He thinks the Citadel is the whole world. He thinks it's the center of the world. It, you know, he's young. He is young. And people don't know a lot about what's not in, they don't move travel around, obviously. Yeah. It's the same thing with the tortures. People think that they're mythical, something that you would see in the book when they were really, you know, just a day's journey down the road. At this point, Ajia directs the very end to look between two popular trees. There's an inn there, and Ajia says that Severian promised her a meal before the duel. He didn't actually do that. And he doesn't see the inn, but that's where she wants her meal. Coincidentally or not, she wants it in the establishment where Severian's dad works. He's just met his grandfather. He's in the company of his grandmother. It's a family reunion. (laughs) Ajia likes to go there often because Owen is going to recognize her. Severian doesn't want to eat. He he says he'll make arrangements for her to be fed after his duel. She says, do so. If you're killed, I'll invite the Septentrion, the guy who he's supposed to duel. Or if he won't come, that broken sailor who's forever inviting me. We'll drink to you. Severian still can't see the inn, but he does see a, quote, stair of rustic wood going up around the trunk of one of the trees. The trunk is a full 10 paces in circumference. Severian never really defines a pace, but it could be the equivalent of a foot or a yard or something in between. I feel like it's probably about a foot, but I can't be sure. Now he sees that when Ajia said the inn was between the trees, she meant up in the branches of the trees, not in the distance between the trees. He can see the lights of the inn up there. At the start of the stairs is a sign with a painted picture of a weeping woman dragging a bloody sword. This is called, right, the end of lost loves. Now, incidentally, remember that I've been saying this quest by Severian overlays book six of the Aeneid, where Aeneas travels to the underworld to get advice from his father. And I say that Asia is the Kamean Sibyl who leads him, and that Owen is his father who will give him advice, and Dorcas is Dido, Helen of Troy, who he encountered by chance, weeping, inconsolable. He had heard a rumor that she was dead, but he didn't know it for sure until at that point. I'd like to read from the passage where Aeneas encounters Dido. Not far from here, outspread on every side, are shown the morning fields. Here, those whom stern love has consumed with cruel are hidden in walks, withdrawn, wasting, embowered in a myrtle grove. Even in death, the pangs leave them not. Among them, with the wound still fresh, Phoenician Dido was wandering in the great forest, and soon as the Trojan heroes stood near and knew her, a dim form among the shadows, she shed tears 
and spoke to her in tender love. Unhappy Dido, was the tale true then that came to me that you were dead and had sought your doom with the sword? So greeting them at the bottom of the stairs. That's cool. There's yeah. a lot. There. Yeah, there's a whole lot there. I mean, not only the. I mean, of course, you get the sword at the bottom of the stairs. You the image of the sword. That's so cool. Um, and a woman weeping. Yeah. Yeah, and all the character structures fit as well. Everything that's lying together there. That's yeah. really cool. Um, and we do know that Wolf was fan of the Aeneid mm-hmm. and Iliad and used them many times for different things. But no, that's that's a good catch. That's a really good catch. Um, there's one other reference that I feel like in some ways you have to look at here. And for me, it's not so much the, the poetic of the woman dragging the sword. It's just that once we get to the fat innkeeper, that once you combine that with the tree and everything else, that there's gotta be at least a little bit of Tolkien and Brie in the back <laughs> of his mind here, just right before you get out into the edge of the war of the crazy world, you stop at an inn and uh-huh. have a little bit of a, I mean, this guy's nowhere near as, goofy or whatever as Butterbur is. In <laughs> but, you know, he is that kind of, he stops and he'll, he'll sit there and he, he talks about the money. And I like how in a moment Severian's going to say he brings the fire in and then sits there and, you know, kind of forgetfully hangs out. But then also the fact that the tree in the inn is so very much described like the, the trees in uh, Lothlorien. Mm-hmm. It, it, there has to be a little bit of Tolkien going on in here as well. Oh yeah, sure. But um, but no, I think the as far as the the character relationships that are going on, the Aeneid seems so perfect at this point, and it's also a really good transition moment, right? When when Aeneas is about to take up with Dido and commit to the whole complicated thing of that relationship, exactly like he's doing here, mm-hmm. um, except with Dorcas, right. And as you say, greeting them at the bottom of the stairs is a monstrously fat man in an apron. He steps out of the shadow and stands beside the sign, rubbing his hands while he waited our coming. His name is Aben. Now, St. Aben was a 7th century Irish saint of high esteem. Even a town in central West Britain has spiritually claimed association with him. He's practically a mythical character of history, since one of the histories of his life claimed that he lived for 300 years. However, I can't see any obvious association with him to an innkeeper. Uh, Perhaps his name was selected because he's in league with Agia and Agilis. So Mm -hmm. maybe he's a member of the Gang of A's or something. Yeah, this was another time where I had a hard time finding the saint name to have a whole lot of connection mm-hmm. to, or the actual saint to, to what was going on here. Yeah. No, I still, and maybe that's also cause I keep thinking Butterbur, but <laughs> <laughs> and there's a bee in Aubin. There's two bees. Holy there's, cow. Butterbur, <laughs> two bees in Butterbur and two bees in Aubin. No, sorry. Well, Aubin eyes the Avern as he talks to Severian just by the Avern dangling over Severian. He knows he's going to a duel. This is not remarkable because he'll explain that this restaurant is the nearest possible to the sanguinary fields. So it's popular with people who come for the duels. Quote, the famous combatants and heroes, the spectators and physicians, even the ephors. That is, 
the judges of the event. An E4 was a judge that ruled Sparta. There were five E4s elected annually that ruled alongside with the two kings. Anyway, an E4 is a judge. But during their conversation, Severian notices a look flash between Aben and Asia that made him feel certain that they had met previously. Right. And this is the chapter where I feel like you're finally pretty much confirmed, at least to me, that Agia and Agilis have pulled this many times in slightly different forms, maybe. But the fact that she and the innkeeper know what's going on here and Agia knows the whole thing of, of how it's going to work and that you got to pay beforehand to get your meal. I mean, they've, they've done this before. Um, but yeah, also you mentioned about how the inn, you know, makes its money off off of the people going to the duel, the innkeeper in a minute is even going to admit, yeah, he's like, part of the reason I can keep my prices so low is because half the time, you know, people don't come back to actually finish, get, get what they pay for. Well, you know, the consensus of course is that Agia and Agilis and the proprietor are all in cahoots. And I think that is justified, but you know, linked to this is the assumption that Agia and Agilis regularly dupe people into duels I'm not sure that that's self-evident. It does explain how the two of them begin their plot against a stranger before without any need of consultation. But all this presumes that we take their explanation after the duel at face value. And I don't think that's warranted. In Agilis's cell, they act like they did this as a last resort because Severian wouldn't sell the sword. But like I said, they had this plan in place before Severian even entered the shop. So, right. And so that's why I still feel like it's a setup con because even Owen says, you know, the woman with you has been here before, you know, he's mm-hmm. even he says, yeah, I've seen her here before. So, but yeah, I mean, I mean, we've already gone over yeah. different, <laughs> ways that different types of, of theories we have about Asia. And I still, I'm still personally kind of uh, amazed by the, the idea that you had with the sex doll and, and Heather <laughs> mainly, not so much because of that, but more because of, of it gives Heather a much more sort of insidious role. I feel yeah, like yeah. much more in control. Um, but, but yeah, so yeah, there are different ways that you can look at that. Um, but if you're looking for the, I think the two examples of where we finally know that, or, or at least firm for, like you said, the consensus view is confirmed. It's that look between, the innkeeper and her, and then Owen's note saying that she's been yeah. here before. Yeah. Well, I think it, I think it is obvious that they are in cahoots. I don't think it's clear necessarily what they're doing. Obviously, since this inn is on the edge of the duels, it does it, it's reasonable to begin putting together some uh, a string of theories that leads you to say, well, you know. This is not the first time they've done this. This is what they do. The idea is to get someone to the duel. So that's why they come here. Maybe. I don't think that anyone should take anything that they say, even after their plan has been quote unquote revealed, should take anything they say at face value because it still doesn't quite make sense. Not to me. If we were prosecutors presenting this case before a jury, I think there are huge opportunities for reasonable doubt regarding means and motive and opportunity. It's hard to come up with a single story that explains all three of those things. But anyway, Severian orders a dinner for two. And after checking with Agia, asks that it be served at new watch. So maybe in an hour or an hour and a half. The point is that the duel will be over at that time. And Agia 
will be dining with a guest of her choice. Presumably, she's confident it won't be Severian because she's left out an important bit of advice that will likely get him killed. The meal will take longer than that to prepare unless they're willing to have cold meats, a salad, and a bottle of wine. And that's not good enough for Ajia. She has to have a roast fowl, a young one. Aben says fine, and they can eat baked goods while they wait. So the tradition of dinner rolls on the table while you wait for your meal persists to this time. Aben also addresses the fact that Dorcas is still covered in mud. He says, meanwhile, if you have time, I could provide a basin of warm water and a sponge for this other young lady, you know, to get this stinking mud off of her if she's going to eat in my restaurant. But he diplomatically includes it as a list of other services, including a glass of wine and biscuits. The wine one thing are, about the yeah. wine, though, is it's it's a Madoc, which <laughs> if you remember, if you're a big Edgar Allan Poe fan, Madoc is the other wine that's mentioned in Cask of Amontillado. And it's one of the two wines that uh, Montressor uses to get, um, oh shoot, what's the other guy's name? Uh, um, the guy he's going um, right. to kill, to pull him down. His name was Fortunato. I never remembered the whole time we were talking. First, there's some Madoc, we can have that, but then the Amontillado is deeper down. To me, that seems intentional because, I mean, I'm obviously, I'm playing the, the skeptic to your more deeper conspiracy Asia theory, so and I'm just kind of going uh-huh. with the mainstream. <laughs> but, but, I mean, if you're looking for like a good reference to someone who's leading someone deeper and deeper into a trap, Madoc is perfect because that's exactly what Montressor uses to, to sort of pull the other guy down into into the thing. So I don't know. It's, is it an actual reference? I don't know. So, but I, I, I like to think it is. Well, I do agree with that because otherwise a Madoc is a French Bordeaux red wine. And obviously, you know, France as we know it is gone. I don't believe that we're supposed to expect that the wine economy of France has continued to this day. So the value of a Madoc is got to be only in its literary references. Probably so, yeah. I checked to see if there are other famous uses of Madoc, but but no. So it's funny that that's actually one thing I remembered from back when I taught high school. And I would teach Casco Amontillado because the kids were always excited that we got to read a story about wine, which was weird. I was like, I, I don't know why they thought it was. I was like, I thought the cool part would be getting to wall a guy up and <laughs> kill him that way. And they're like, no, wine. No, Whatever. such misbehavior. Right. <laughs> So now Severian suddenly remembers that he hasn't eaten since breakfast and nothing before that, but an old fish that he got at the end last night. And he also considers that Aji and Dorcas might have eaten nothing all day themselves. Aben asks if Severian has ever been there before, and Severian says no. Aben brags that they keep a famous kitchen and dining in the open air gives one the best appetite. And Severian thinks, it must indeed if he maintained such girth in a place where every room was reached by steps. But I kept the reflection to myself. The inn is open air. There's no walls, no roof, just a platform. That's how they skirt the regulation that they can't have a building so close to the wall by avoiding the legal definition of a building. The restaurant is a circular and perfectly level platform. It seems to me that Since it has no walls, the chambers, as Aben calls them, are divided by the branches and leaves. Perhaps they are regularly trimmed to do that. Pale green foliage. 
canvas chairs and couches made of leather and the linked horns of lechways and waterbucks. Lechways are antelopes. So this uh, couch that they sit in, it's just the sort of couch I've always liked. And my wife has always said, no way. <laughs> so. Oh, is this the horns? Is it the yeah, yeah covered with a- linked together with horns and uh, that is a, it's a perfect Texas thing. It's a, yeah. it's a long horns and <laughs> yeah, I've always wanted my furniture and and decor to just be made up of horns of link, interlinked <laughs> like that. So it is, and it makes sense though. But all the furniture here is biological stuff, which just to contrast it with every other building we've seen, that's some mix of architecture and stone and all that kind of thing. That this is the first place where where Wolf seems to make a point that everything instead is. You know, organic in some form mm-hmm. or another. Yeah. Not really sure what to do with that unless it's just part of the window dressing of this place. But, um, well, yeah, it's, it's to go right before you and... die is all, all full of life. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's probably cheaply made and, um, by be that available too, yeah. materials. Yeah. Lighter to carry up and down the stairs. Right. Mm-hmm. Ajia takes the canvas chair and Severian throws himself onto the couch beside Dorcas. He stores the Avern and pole behind the couch and at last takes out Terminus S to clean the blade. This has been bothering him since he fell in the water two or three chapters ago. A scullion brings a sponge and water for Dorcas and then brings rags and oil for Severian. A scullion is essentially a busboy or dishwasher in this context. It's a servant who does menial tasks, dishwashing, mopping floors. The word comes from a root meaning dish. Scullery are the keepers of the dishes and eating tinsels. A scuttle is a bucket. Now, one thing about this detail, though, that I never caught before, but so the scullion boy, the the little, like you said, sort of menial servant notices what Severian's doing and goes and gets some specialized tools, right? Rags Mm -hmm. and oil. Um, And Severian didn't say he asked for it. So instead, you've got this little kid here who immediately knows what people are doing when they're caring for weapons, which means that he's probably seen lots of people caring for weapons in this little inn here. But I just thought that was kind of a, a neat little detail that I had never really thought of the context oh. before. But to me, it's yet another thing that, yeah, if this inn is a place where people are often getting ready to fight, mm-hmm. then yeah, I guess all the fights don't have Averns all the time on the Sanguinary Field. And <laughs> oh, that's probably true. Going on too. Yeah, so Zavarian works at removing the pommel of his sword so he can give the blade a thorough cleaning. Uh, You just tap it off of the blade. Now, I don't know much about swords, I'll be honest, but is that normal? Like, can you take a sword apart, like to take it, take the blade out of the pommel? Is that? I would think so. Yeah, it's got to be. I mean, it's got to be very firm. It can't be easy to get it off, but. Think about it. How else would you, how else would you do it? A sword is going to get blood and mud all in there. How can you clean it otherwise? I guess that's true. For some reason, I always thought it it ought to be like some kind of permanent seal or something. I have no idea. I don't know. I should should go watch those forged in fire shows more often. Well, think about it. You can't, you can't weld it in place unless the pommel is the same material as the sword. Yeah, I guess that's true. In which case you don't have, can't have a very ornate pommel. Yeah, I guess that's true. But anyway, Dorcas doesn't start cleaning herself. She's too shy to do it in front of Severian or even Aja, which Aja thinks is amusing, but not in a nice way. So Severian gives the scullion an orichok to bring a folding screen, like those folding oriental screens people put in their houses as decoration. I'm not judging. I'm just saying that's what it is. (laughs) Severian offers to buy Dorcas a gown if they sell them here, but she whispers, no. 
Severian says to Agia, what's the matter with her? I'm trying to get her out of her rags. And Agia says, she likes what she has, clearly. Agia supposes she likes them because they show off her body, her legs and breasts. But that's probably projecting. And she says, there's a rent at the groin, too, though I dare say you haven't noticed it. She says, I have to walk with a hand to hold up my bodice or else I'll be shamed for life. And then she lets the bodice go so her breasts, quote, gleamed in the dying sunlight. <laughs> That's goofy, but... So why why does Dorcas not want... I mean, I know she's still basically in shock and going over everything, but why would she, if all she's wearing are tattered rags, is that is that like a moment of saying that it's one of the few things that she can hold on to and so she doesn't want to change or... or it's the only thing that she, I don't know, came into the world with or these old really, rags. Did, Otherwise, did, it seems like it's so uncomfortable and dirty and that at least she'd be warmer. And I don't know. I don't know. A lot of possibilities. Could have been buried in your favorite dress. Um, True. Could be, you know, she's just not like Aja. She doesn't want to be obligated to some strange man. Mm, true. Could be. Now, Aben and the waiter bring starters for the table. Pastries, a bottle of wine, and glasses. And it doesn't say so here, but the waiter showing up is Owen. Then they brought in a brazier because Severian mentions that his clothes are wet. A brazier is an open pan of hot coals. Aben stands in front of it and warms himself. And he says, feels good this time of year. The sun's dead and don't know it yet, but we do. <laughs> if you're killed... You'll get to miss next winter. And if you're hurt bad, you'll get to stay inside. That's why I always tell them. Of course, most of the fights are around Midsummer's Eve. So it's more appropriate then, so to speak. I don't know if it comforts them or not, but it does no harm. Which seems like it would. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. Just the uh, talking all about like, yeah, even if you're maimed and wounded, you'll get to stay inside. And <laughs> if you die, you're not going to care anyway. So it's all good. Look on the bright side. Does no harm, I wonder. Yeah. Severian takes off his mantle and his fulgent cloak and boots, and he stands beside Aben shirtless to dry his breeches and hose. I, I don't think I ever appreciate that his pants are breeches and hose, like the like 18th century people or baseball players. Right. I think that's the first time they mention that, if I'm right. I think so, yeah. Specifically the hose. And that's one thing that I don't think you see too many pictures of Severian in breeches and hose. He's usually no, no, the Don Mates illustrations never have that. Oh, that's right. That's right. Duh. The big ones. But I, I was thinking of other ones recently that I've seen on like the, the Facebook page and things like that. But yeah, that's true. Again, remember their fulgen. So Severian wants to discuss the duel with Aben. He says, like every man who feels himself likely to die, I would have been happy to know that I was taking part in some established tradition. That's what he learned from Gerloise, I guess, who told Thecla that her excruciation device was the most honored. He asks if all the duelists come here. All? Oh, no. May moderation and St. Amand bless you, sir. Hmm. I think this is the only time a patron is referred to as St. Something. Yep. I was going to say, I double-checked and, or, well, I checked. <laughs> it's the <laughs> only time I could find someone at least this early named Saint. And, oh, shoot, and then I didn't even look that one up. <laughs> oh, well, Saint, I can tell you. Saint Amand was a Belgian priest who is the patron saint of innkeepers, bartenders, winemakers, beer brewers, merchants, 
and supposedly the Boy Scouts. He's the patron saint of the service industry. Okay. Well, of course that makes sense. That's unique then because it's one of the few times where then Wolf is using the name saint as what it's actually there for. Yeah, as precisely the meaning, yeah. Yeah. I'll have to check. Does he do that anywhere else? I'm trying to think if there's, there is another saint named somewhere and I can't remember who it is. I can't, I, well, both of you, uh, I, I couldn't find one and it's certainly the first or time. Or maybe I'm wrong. One. Maybe I'm thinking of something else, but I could have sworn. I didn't, that I didn't check. I just checked earlier. I mean, Catherine's <laughs> called Holy Catherine. I think the other patrons are just called by their names. Yeah. But Aben says that if everyone who came to Duel stayed at his inn, he'd be a rich man. He'd be living in a big stone house with a Troxes at the door and a few young fellows with knives hanging about me to settle my, my enemies. Um, having a team of assassins is an interesting lottery winner goal. <laughs> and a Trox is, according to Castle of the Otter, a scary face sculpted or painted on the door to impress visitors, like the ones on the door of the Madison Tower. Again, this is an interesting life goal. Considering that he might be in league with Agia, I don't know. Is this a tell? He wants to become a, a master leader of a, a huge gang. Yeah, master of assassins. Hard to say. Hard to say whether that's just him sort of making fun of things or whether it's sort of, it, it's one of those things that is fun because it can be taken both as maybe he's making some joke, but it could also be, or this is just this terribly dangerous world they live in where, where that's what passes for security and retirement in your old age is <laughs> just to have to be the master of an assassin's guild. Um, I don't know, but it's, it, I feel like that when you can take either way, like is I can see this guy joking about things like that, but I can also, it also fits so well with other things we know about mm -hmm. Nessus at this point. Yeah. Aja hands Severian a glass of wine. Severian says that it was quote, not a good wine. It made his tongue prickle it had a delicious taste with a kind of harshness, but cold and tired as he was, it was, quote, wonderful wine, a wine better than good. Also, just a kind of odd thing, because we never really get the sense that the torturers are, you know, big Epicureans or anything. I mean, when he's talking about the difference between the meals that the prisoners and the apprentices get, it's, you know, he gets a little more meat, right? Um, he may be and... reviewing it in retrospect now that he's. Well, it could be. Could be, but um, but yeah, I was just thinking that that it struck me this time that uh, I there are later times that like when Severian goes to other ends and always tries to make himself seem you know super important or sophisticated or things like that, and that this would have that, but that he doesn't necessarily have the background. I don't know. Right. It just it just just struck me again as sort of an odd thing. Asia is on her second full glass at least. When Severian tells her to save a glass for Dorcas, she says, that milk and water virgin, she won't drink it. And it's you who will need the courage, not she. Severian says that he's not afraid, but he wasn't being quite honest. But Aben gives him an attaboy for that. He brings up the dinner for after the duel, and Severian says that they've already ordered it. Ordered, but not paid. He breaks into French. Also, there's the wine. And these ghetto sex, I think I'm pronouncing that actually correct, um, pastries, cookies. It turns out that they weren't complimentary. <laughs> For the dinner, he has to put down a deposit of three orichocks and then two more when they arrive after the duel. So 
Sorian pays him. Oh, one thing we should go back to that we mentioned his, his little phrase about the sun's dead and don't know it yet. Um, just cause that's one of the first times it's not the, the first time, but it's one of the first times where talking about the sun being dead is sort of something that's just in the culture. And, you know, cause it could well be that he's talking about that as some kind of common phrase, but, um, you know, which is kind of how I, I take it, you know, feels good this time of year. The sun's dead. Don't know it yet, but we do. It's, it's almost like saying, you know, Oh, it's winter, you know, and, and so things are cold, but, but of course also we know the, the bigger picture. Yeah. It's, it's Severian is dead and don't know it yet. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Exactly. That too. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, just wanted to yeah. bring that one up. So Dorcas is still cleaning herself and the scullion is helping. Ajia peeps in on her and then goes back to finishing everything off and making a pass at Severian. And then Severian notices a little scrap of paper, the famous scrap of paper, <laughs> folded many times and placed under the waiter's tray so that no one could see it unless they were sitting right where Severian was, on the couch, where Dorcas was sitting next to him. He says, first a challenge and then a secret message. Aji is standing, I guess. She asks, what's up? And he grabs her by the hip and behind, and she doesn't object, and pulls her over so that she can read the note with him. She's still standing. Severian starts making a joke. What do you think it says? The Commonwealth has need of you. Ride at once. Your friend is he who shall say to you, Camarilla, beware the man with the pink hair. A Camarilla is a cabal, a secret gang. Ajia joins in. Come when you hear three pebbles tap the window. The leaves, I should say, here. The rose has stabbed the iris whose nectar affords. That's your Avern killing me, clearly. Um, probably something else, actually. And we get it, Ajia, we get it. <laughs> also, she goes on, you will know your true love by her red pagne. A pagne is a loincloth. Red pagne. Again, she's making a dirty joke. And actually in Castle of the Otter, uh, Wolf actually says that she's making a dirty joke. She bends over and kisses him and then sits on his lap. And she says, aren't you going to look? Her breasts are showing again. Severian says, I am looking. And she says, not there. She tells him to cover her breast with his hand so she, he can pay attention to the note. He puts his hand on her breast, but he doesn't take a look at the note. Severian speculates on the strangeness of the day. Challenged by a soldier he doesn't know, then he meets Hildegrin, and now this note. He doesn't mention sleeping with a giant, but it's even stranger than that. <laughs> because his teenage grandmother is bathing behind the screen right now. He says, have I mentioned the Chatelaine Thecla to you? More than once while we were walking. I loved her. She read a great deal. There was really nothing for her to do when I was gone but to read and sew and, sh and sleep. And when I was with her, we used to laugh at the plots of some of the stories. This sort of thing was always happening to people in them. They were incessantly involved in high and melodramatic affairs for which they had no qualifications. <laughs> okay, Severian. Yeah. And so of course the obvious irony here is like, it even starts back when they're telling the jokes and whatnot. They're like, your friend is he who shall say to you, Camarilla. Well, 
what's going to happen with Vodalist, right? He's going to get a phrase. He's doing right? that, yeah. Yeah, he's exactly a phrase. And so, you know, irony is not lost here that, you know, he's joking about the high and strange events. You know, that kind of goes back a little bit to what we were talking about with um, the destruction of the altar of the how ridiculous some of luck and, and chance starts to seem to be after a while, which of course, I mean, this is a fantasy romance epic, that kind of thing. It's all about that kind of stuff. That's the genre. But here's a moment where they're being really self-conscious about, about that. You know, Severian's going to say, really, this is all just too much. You know, this is just, there's <laughs> too much going on. But of course that's precisely the whole point of, of right. what we're doing here. Uh, the other thing too, just one little note here, when he asks her, he says, have I mentioned the Chatelaine Thakla to you? Probably that's that sort of supposedly innocent way of saying, I want to bring this up again. And so here's <laughs> a way to do it. But you could also say, is he forgotten? Did he rem- forget how many times he mentioned yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Him? You know, that's where I feel like it's probably him just trying to say, I just want to talk about Thecla a lot more. <laughs> and yeah. so that's an easy way to bring it up. But I don't know, if you if you want to say that he forgot. Yeah. 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 All this information that he gives her about Thecla is, of course, playing right into a plot that we're going to get in the next volume. Yeah. It's almost, I mean, that's also set up too of exactly how Aji is going to know how to write the letter. Right. To get him convinced that Thecla is still alive. Yeah. Which means the way that she is paying attention. You know, we, we've talked before about how sharp and clever Aji mm-hmm. is, but she is absorbing all of this stuff and she knows exactly how to use it. She doesn't, and she doesn't forget anything for sure. So mm-hmm. Severian kind of talks about all how crazy all the plots were in these stories and how people got into all these melodramatic affairs, for which they had no qualifications. And Aja laughs and then she kisses him along. It's as if knowing that she's plotting Severian's death turns her on. <laughs> yeah. Now she asks about Hildegrand. What's so strange about him? And Severian explains that he once saved the life of Vodalus. And now she pulls away, spewing. She's just kind of, Vodalus? You're joking. Not at all. That's what his friend called him. I was hardly more than a boy <laughs> a year and a half ago. But I held back the haft of an axe for a moment. The blow would have killed him. And he gave me a chrysis. He's leaving stuff out. So what's that got to do with Hildegrin? When I first saw Vodalus, he had a man and a woman with him. Enemies came upon them and Vodalus remained behind to fight while the other man took the woman to safety. Severian deliberately didn't tell her that they were digging up a corpse or that he killed the man. All this prudence is out of character, but I suppose you know the deaths would, in Severian's mind, make him and Vodalus look worse. He's probably wrong in this case, though. In fact, Ajia says that she'd have joined in the fight if she'd been there. I'd have fought myself. Then there would have been three fighters instead of one. Go on. Wait a minute. Why three? Does she figure that if she joined in, that Severian would have two? Yeah, I think that's the assumption. So, so anyway, Severian says that if they had met Hildegrand and then he got the challenge, he'd understand why a cavalry officer had challenged him to a duel. And then he'd figure it was Vodalus sending this message right now. It would all be just like the stories he and Thecla read. Spies and intrigued, masked trysts, lost heirs, all things in Severian's life, by the way, mm-hmm. or, or will be very soon. Ajia is starting to cue to how this message could be a problem, though. And Severian noticed that she looks troubled, and he asks about it. And she says, do I revolt you? Am I so ugly? He says, you're beautiful, but you look as if you're about to be sick. I think you drank too fast. She whips off her gown, 
She's completely naked. And Severian is really turned on and starts in on her. Agia says, wait, I'm not a strumpet, whatever you may think. That's I'm not a prostitute. But there's a price. What? You must promise me that you won't read that note. Throw it into the brazier. Severian immediately lets go of her and steps back. And there are tears in her eyes, rising as springs do among rocks. She says, I wish you could see the way you're looking at me now, Severian. No, I don't know what it says. It's just that, have you never heard of some women having supernatural knowledge, premonitions, knowing things they could not possibly have learned? Okay, Severian spent a day with a woman like that. (laughs) But the mood has completely changed. It's not desire he feels now. He's frightened and he's angry. He senses that he's being played, but he doesn't know why. Regarding the women with supernatural knowledge, Severian says, Get this. We have a guild of such women, our sisters in the Citadel. Neither their faces nor their bodies are like yours. This is the first we've heard of Severian knowing something is off about which bodies and faces. I don't really understand what he means. I mean... What's the deal with Marin when he meets her? Well, yeah, I mean, when I, I like that way he puts it, because obviously on the surface at right now, what he's saying is, you know, they're nowhere near as attractive as you. But then on the deeper level, maybe he's saying they're barely human <laughs> in certain yeah. ways, which I mean, we're going to get the Cumaean, right? Right. Um, so it can go both ways. Yeah. Um, it's also the first time that he ever really suggests that he knows what the witches do because before this, everything is always with about the witches is just strange. And we don't even really know what the purpose of what they were is apart from the fact that they were split off from the, the torturers maybe a long time ago, but now that they occasionally have premonitions and supernatural knowledge and can see the future somehow mm-hmm. that's he's like, Oh yeah, the witches <laughs> just like, um, but, but yeah, but I also like, yeah, I never really caught that point before about, you know, their bodies not being like yours. I thought he was just kind of saying, yeah, but they're, they're not near as cute as you are. <laughs> but, yeah, but <laughs> no, no. I, oh, it's really the way Marin is described in the book of the short sun always made me think that she's wearing some kind of weird mask. Everything mm-hmm. about Ajia convinces me that she's at least on the run from the witches. Ajia, however, denies explicitly that she's a witch, which only is convincing me more emphatically that she is. (laughs) She says, I know I'm not like that, but that's why you must do what I advise. I've never in my life had a premonition of any strength and I have one now. Don't you see that must mean it's something so true and so important that you can't and mustn't ignore it? Burn the note. Severian sees it differently. Someone is trying to warn me, and you don't want me to see it. I asked you if the Septentrion was your lover. You told me he was not, and I believed you. I believe you still. Your voice had truth in it. Yet you are laboring to betray me in some way. Tell me now that isn't so. Tell me you're acting in my best interests and nothing beyond. Severian, tell me. Severian, we met this morning. I hardly knew you, and you hardly know me. What can you expect 
and what would you expect if you had not just left the shelter of your guild? I've tried to help you from time to time. I'm trying to help you now. I think this is a strange little statement she's saying. It could be just that it's not a coherent message because it, I can't put anything she's saying into a coherent message. Yeah, it could be just that she's panicking, right? Mm-hmm. I, like, I feel like that's probably, if we're looking for Occam's razor, the simplest explanation of this, I think, is that it's kind of clicked for her now. Oh, hey, somebody's trying to tell this dupe that I'm duping him like other times I've duped mm-hmm. somebody and I, I'm, and she's freaking out. And so she's just kind of not making sense and grasping at straws because otherwise this is not a good way to get him <laughs> to do it. I mean, no, to she's, totally saying, she's kind of saying betrayal is the way humans are. Of course I'm betraying yeah. you. <laughs> what would you expect? And she's saying, you know, that's got to the way she describes it is, you know, that note could be something that's so desperately important for you. Don't look at it. <laughs> you know, it's like uh, what? Um, it, that's it's just such a non-appropriate way to look at it. So pa- her panic is is kind of a good way to look at this. That she feels caught. Do you Maybe, have something yeah. else to go along? It's just with the- that not really. It's just that she's saying she's trying to help. The advice she's given him, of course, would end up killing anyone else. Mm-hmm. But I want to believe that there's some kind of perverse truth in what she's saying when she says she's trying to help him right now. Like it's all part of whatever game she's playing. And I, I, and I do feel like the game she's playing is, is not the game we ever are sort of led to believe she's playing. I don't know what it is. This is one of those places where I tend to, I'm more on your side with something else going on here because he even gives her an out, right? He says, mm-hmm. look, just tell me, just tell yeah, just, me right now. Tell that me you're on my side. Yeah. Everything else she's doing is lying to him. She's lying mm-hmm. to him about having been the Septentrion mm-hmm. and why can't she lie there? Right. It's a strange mm-hmm. moment where it's like, that's the obvious place where she should just say, yes, I have your best interest at heart. And maybe Severian would be like, okay, you know, he's, he's shown that he's willing to go along with all kinds of things. So why wouldn't she do it there? And, you know, she even says later, she talks about, I could have distracted you and thrown it in the fire. That's what I ought to have done. And, and you know, there's so many better ways to have dealt with this, um, that it's just a strange moment. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've talked about the Kamehian Sibyl, that that's the role that Ajia plays here. I, I think that's true. In the story in the Eonid, the help that the Sibyl provides is not to go to the underworld. That's easy. The service is that they would find their way back. As the Aeneid says in book six, the descent of Avernus is easy. All night long, all day, the doors of Hades stand open. But to retrace the path, to come up to the sweet air of heaven, that is labor indeed. (laughs) I can't support it with even a theory, a story right now. But my sense is that Agia truly believes that she is there to help Severian in some twisty, Wolfian way. She could very well be a hidden hero. Hmm. Incidentally, Virgil, the author of the Enid, was seen as a pagan prophet of Christ. Even Emperor yeah. Constantine interpreted the Ecologues as an announcement of Christ. The passage that I read from C.S. Lewis way back in the comments of chapter three make reference to that as well. But there's an acrostic in the Sibylline oracles built around the word ichthus, a Christian reference. 
Anyway, Severian says, put on your dress. He picks up the note and Aja springs at him and he holds Roth with one arm. I, I imagine her swinging at him and his, his kind of stiff arming her. Severian can tell that the note was pinned sloppily with a crow quill. He's trying to make it out, but he can't. I could have distracted you and thrown it into the fire. That's what I ought to have done. Severian, let me go. Be quiet. I had a knife only last week, a misery cord with an ivory root handle. We were hungry and Agilus put it in pawn. If I had it still, I could stab you now. Well, let's come back to that knife in a little bit. Right. Severian says that if she had it, it would be in her gown, which is currently on the floor. He pushes her back into the chair, and then he walks over to where he can get the last bit of light from the setting sun. And the note says, the woman with you has been here before. Do not trust her. Trudeau says the man is a torturer. You are my mother. Come again. So this note, of course, is for Dorcas, but it takes a long time for Severian to figure that out. It's from Severian's father, Owen. The mother come again is Dorcas. That's who the message is for. Owen doesn't know from torturers, so I guess it isn't common knowledge to everyone. But then Owen is remarkably clueless about the world. Honestly, mm-hmm. he seems to know less about the way this world is put together than Dorcas, who's spent the last 40 years at the bottom of the lake. The woman who's been there before is Asia. Since this is an end frequented by duelists, as we said, the consensus is that she and Agilus regularly lure people into duels and kill them. But as I said, the plan doesn't scale. We don't actually get proof that that's what Owen means either, ever. Isn't the cons- this consensus, you know, as much conjecture as any of my curiositous earthi? I mean, I say that disparagingly, but also acknowledging its merit as well. Yeah, I mean, I I will I will speak for the masses. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, it's I it's speak for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I speaking of what we're talking about, all this Greek and stuff. I will be the chorus. I will speak for the, <laughs> speak for the polis. But um, so I would say this: it seems like all the other things about Algia are kinds of things that you start to wonder about on multiple reads. Like I feel for me, the one time that that comes out that there's something weirder going on with her has to do with Agilus's second mask. And then the weird thing that she's scrawling on the floor. Mm -hmm. Like those are the two things about the, these twins that really stand out as super weird. I feel like even when you read it the first time, otherwise it's almost more like um, you start to get a sense of, of that there's a scam going on pretty quickly the first Mm -hmm. time when you read it. And, um, and then plus when we find out that, yeah, it's her brother who's doing it. Yeah. It it is a scam. They're trying to kill him and and get the stuff. And they, they admit as much of that. Um, But yeah, how many times they've done it? don't know. You know, that that's maybe a different story. And I mean, honestly, even the fact that she says they used to had a knife, but they pawned it. So maybe they've tried to do this before and just been really bad. (laughs) And they haven't (laughs) been able to pull off the scheme very well. I mean, they're still, still poor and hungry. Um, So yeah, there's, there's definitely room for what you're, Mm. you're talking about, but um, I can see the weight there. Yeah. It's all, all those pieces and they, they're so easily at hand. Yeah. Okay. This is a a plot, but then I don't know. Yeah. And even the way, I mean, there's one thing that I don't think we mentioned it before, but when um, 
when the innkeeper is talking um, about payment and whatnot, Severian says, um, oh yeah, the man's complete insensibility disarmed me that, <laughs> you know, he's just so casually talking about how many people die and whatnot that, uh -huh. that it's almost like, yeah, I see all kinds of bad stuff go on all the time and, you know, people come through and they die and they're going to get killed that it doesn't necessarily prove that he's seen Asia before and knows the game she's playing. Mm -hmm. But, but the fact that, he's so used to these kinds of things. Yeah. Well, the fact that Severian notices that they do, they are used. To, I mean, I, I think I agree. He's seen Aja here before. Owen's see her and her here before. Yeah. What have they been doing? I don't know. But just one little thing too, before we, we get back, just to notice here that, that if we're, we're kind of keeping a scorecard of Severian and his, uh, you know, violence with women, I, it's, just kind of funny to me that he even points out he's you know, I pushed her staggering back there to to knock her back and then he has this little aside saying you know but she she was drunk enough that it wasn't just me being me yeah. that made her trip <laughs> uh, it's just one of those weird sort of you know I just think it's sort of funny that he's like and and it wasn't totally mean because she was a little drunk <laughs> just the fact that he has to bring that up so but but no so so the note um so let's maybe we can talk about the note and Owen a little bit that this is a warning to Dorcas that she's with some bad people, mm -hmm. but then also, is it a warning that, Hey, I think you're my mom, or is he trying to say you are actually my mom? I mean, the phrasing of that thing, you are my mother come again. Yeah. He thinks it's a miracle in some case. It seems like a miracle phrasing. Yeah. And yeah. so, um, so that's why it's, it's a weird thing. It's also strange to put it in a note. I mean, but I don't know. Mm -hmm. I guess he's, I mean, he's a servant. He doesn't know. He knows that, People are coming here to fight and whatnot, so he can't just break into the room, I guess, and and do this. So I guess that's one way to do it. Uh, St. Trudeau is no one of note. It's just a guy. And he's going to keep the actual physical note for a while. We yeah, should, yeah. You should yeah. note as well. Yes, too. yes, yes. He's going to keep that. He, he loses a lot. He seems to fall in the water a lot, but somehow he keeps it safe. Uh, let's go back to that misrecord knife. Now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This definitely feels like a literary hint. Something put in front of the reader by the author as something we're supposed to pick up on. But there's no consensus about what's given here about why it's such a big deal. Misery cord means literally merciful heart. It is a knife that's used to dispatch badly wounded people on a battlefield. It's more of a spike than a blade. It has three edges and you work it into the armor and dispatch people. Lexicon Earthus says that it was called the dagger of mercy because you'd show the blade and the wounded soldier would surrender. I, I don't know. That sounds counterintuitive to its ostensible purpose. It's also interesting that Wolf in, in Castle of the Otter, he gives like a whole paragraph definition of this one, right? He's, he really spends time on it <laughs> in, <laughs> in, I mean, he says a dagger with a stiff diamond cross section of three. He, Blade, he talks about it, but then he goes on a, the literal meaning of the name is merciful heart. It usually assumed to be ironic, but it seems more likely that the reference is to killing the badly wounded quickly and with little pain. Right. So I guess, I don't know if this is, we don't need the Curiosity Arthas music for this, but I think I mentioned before that Borsky takes this idea. Oh, shoot, was it Borsky? Uh, Berman. Berman takes the idea as a sign that... Uh, their mother was a pellerine. A pellerine, yeah. And so because it's that kind of knife that could be used for merciful purposes, that it was possibly a nurse's knife. And the closest thing we see to nurses here are the pellerines. Yeah, you know, it's it's a knife for dispatching people on the battlefield. It's not right, really. Right. I think that was just the, the way that I thought that they were, that Berman was making the argument. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, but at least he comes up with some kind of reason for it. I, it's better than I'm doing. Um, it, I mean, for me, it, it's like Thea's doves, like Hathor's paracoita with hands like doves. The misericord feels like a signal that I'm totally missing. It does demonstrate that the rag shop does, in fact, deal with blades at least one other time in the past. Uh, maybe that's its purpose. Uh, it comes from Ajia's mother. I'm making little quotation marks with my fingers here. I say the most likely candidate for the mother is a Kamehian witch uh, that Sumerian will meet at the end of the Claw of the Conciliator. But I don't know. I don't know what that's supposed to mean. An ivory, it's got an ivory... An ivy root. An ivy, ivy root an ivy root handle. Uh, I don't know. I mean, there's sort of a, I guess, metaphorical way you could take it that if the wolf describes it, he really points out that it's a small thing that can sort of sneak its way through armor to stab. And I mean, that's sort of a sneaky way to attack someone. Like if you're in someone in full armor and you get a thing that can kind of go up under your armpit, that's sort of a more sneaky kind of blade. And that's, you know, Aji is sneaky. So it would seem Mm -hmm. the kind of thing that would work for here. But then when he adds the thing about the merciful heart and he, he says, he says this usually seemed to be ironic, but then the idea that it could kill people quickly and with little pain, and then it really is merciful. I mean, in castle, of the otter, he added that and really put some emphasis on the idea that it's a weapon that can be merciful. So if you wanted to add that to some strangeness about Asia, I mean, <laughs> since, since the masses are usually just seeing her as some, you know, little like common thief who gets caught up in more things. Well, what if she's actually doing something that is kind of merciful in, in whatever her plans are, or at least whether or not they actually end up that way. Is there something that seems bad about her, but is actually merciful? I mean, that's one way you could take that. I mean, based on Wolf's specific way that he's describing it there. I don't, I don't know exactly how that all works out, but that would definitely be a very different kind of reading of Asia than we're used to getting. Yeah. Well, every theory that I come up with that tries to put the pieces together requires a lot of rearranging of the furniture. So I don't know. It's a lot, it would be a lot easier to just say that they are what they are, but I don't know. We, we got to get Heather involved a little more and yeah, yeah. That's going to be interesting when we get Heather involved. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe we'll come up with something more there because he, to me is still one of the most fascinating characters in the whole book, just because the way he speaks and the possibility of things that he knows and, and every time he's with Severian, he's positively obsequious. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Despite the fact that he's working with someone who just wants to kill him. You know, it's a totally yeah. different idea. Almost as if he kind of knows maybe what Severian is ultimately going to do. Is he one of the... I mean, we know from Earth that there are sailors who get confused in time. Did Heather see mm-hmm. all that stuff? And now he's come back. And even though he's a little crazy, he knows who the new son is. Yeah, he, knows, mean, he knows what's going to happen with the new son. He could, you know, he could be a, a mutinying yeah. sailor. Yeah. Yeah. Which is much more interesting. That's one of the reasons why I find him so, so fascinating. Not only just, just cause also I love the creepy way he speaks, but <laughs> yeah, but I think he's, I mean, whatever we think of Ajia again, I think has to be tied up with Heather in the long run. Cause even, even if she's just the common girl that she is, why does Heather, this intergalactic pirate guy who's all crazy, why does he have such a crush on her? Like, what is it about Asia that well, she calls him a poor sailor, but supposedly she's fi- he's financing all of these trips, all of these mercenaries. Uh, 
Yeah. It's, <laughs> it, you know, it just gets so weird. I mean, it's cool, but, but it's so hard to figure out exactly what's going right. on. So, yeah. So once you add Heather into the mix, then I'm much more with you on, there's gotta be much, much more going on with Ajia and Agilis. Yeah. But that's the end. There's no more to say. <laughs> I was actually trying to sit there and like, since the way that Wolf has the the note written on the page, I was like, oh, it's like 10 syllables, 10 syllables and 12 syllables. It's like, <laughs> I am pentameter, pentameter, hexameter. Does that mean anything? And I have no idea. <laughs> so not, it's a very bad poem if it is a poem. <laughs> we add that confusion to everything else. And then again, just like so many other parts of shadow, we have to speed things up and get on to the sanguinary fields here pretty soon. And, but we're actually getting close to the end of shadow. Isn't that kind of crazy? I know it, the end of the first day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, but we're only, how many chapters away? Are we? We're only, I'm just curious here, but no, we're only 10 chapters from the end. Yeah, that's true. That's and two chapters from, his resurrection mm -hmm. right yep the pacing of this book so far at this point it's a little hard to believe that we're going to get an execution a confrontation with Asia and agilis and a play and a meeting up you know a, a leaving mm -hmm. of and all of that cliffhanger. yes chaotic cliffhanger <laughs> So, we certainly hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and that you'll bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, YouTube, or email. You can find out how to do all that on the show notes at rereadingwolf.podbean.com. I want to know your impressions about Agia's seemingly very strong feelings for Severian at this point in the story, especially if you see something beyond some first Severian solution. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts and tell your wolf-reading friends about this thing. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Thanks, everybody. There was a pig on the table with a fig in his mouth And a snake crawled around the plate And when the wine turned to water and the bread turned to dust I knew I'd arrive too late My name in a book that lay in front of the veil With the key in between the pages And when I unlocked the door I found a hall full of mirrors And I saw my life in stages It was Then they bring in a brazier 
I'm sorry, try again. <laughs> the numbers here. Then they bring in a brazier. <laughs> would work for Dorcas. Could use that too. But actually, I guess yeah. both of them could. That would be very nice if they brought in that for, for both of them. <laughs> you need to do, yeah. I feel like we even had a little chat about what it would mean for the geography, but I could be made things up before without realizing it. Okay, maybe I. You always say something right at the beginning. Should I say something? Just yeah, to give it a shot. Um, I don't know what I want to say, though, but... <laughs> That's why I have to write it down.